here. Um, we're going to go over today uh, for about probably max two hours. That's as much time as I have. The thread that um, Name Redacted did yesterday in regards to the intelligence community weaseling their way into private business and how that worked. And we've got a couple of awesome guests in addition to the author himself here. We have Kyle and uh, everyone knows Kyle by now, um, I think. But if not, he is a really, really brave, amazing uh, whistleblower from the FBI. He's a, an exiled FBI agent. And we have a new person today with us, um, Amy Nelson, who's got an absolutely incredible story, which I've had the opportunity to get a little more familiar with. As a matter of fact, Kyle interviewed her on his show, and that interview came out this morning. So um, if you missed that, we're hosting it, uh, a link to it at Uncover DC, or you can go right to his Rumble channel to see it. Um, before we get into the nitty-gritty, name, I hate calling you that, can you do a kind of breakdown uh, or summary of what we're going to be talking about today, and then we'll jump into Amy because she's on a, t- a, a short time frame, and then we'll go through your f- thread point by point. Okay. Um, I started, uh, the, this account a month ago in December and, um, after Jim Baker was exited, whatever that means from Twitter after sort of not complying or not helping or hindering whatever the, uh, reporters were doing over there for the Twitter files. Um, and then I was just curious who else, what other ex, you know, FBI or CA or whoever works at Twitter. So that's the first one I started with. And uh, I, fa- I found a trend. Um, there were over 15 other ex-FBI, only a couple CIA, but that was really it. Twitter's a small company compared to Facebook and, you know, YouTube, Google, the other social media. So then I, you know, naturally looked at Facebook and what I found at Facebook was even worse. Uh, there's a former CIA, high-level CIA uh intelligence officer kyle he refers to himself twice some as a senior analyst and then at another time intelligence officer so i don't know which one is it but he's the guy aaron berman who manages misinformation policy at facebook so he's sort of the yo roth of facebook um and then i looked at google same exact thing there's uh three former cia people that are managing trust and safety misinformation policy at Google. So the trend is, is not, you know, it is common. And then, you know, I was curious, like why people are working there. And then I, I sort of ran the numbers, compared the companies. And then finally I found this uh, YouTube video that I posted. It's in the um, thread at the top of the spaces here where Jack Dorsey and Sheryl Sandberg uh, were testifying in front of the Senate Intel Committee. And we'll go deeper into the thread later. But uh, Jack, you know, if you haven't looked at it, you can see on tweet number two, he asked the Senate for more help. And he referred to, you know, law enforcement and government as uh, Twitter's partners and that they have partnerships with uh, these uh, social media, or sorry, with the government and uh, law enforcement, and he asked them for more help. So, through the Twitter file releases, um, it seemed like Twitter was pressured to censor, and same with Facebook. But that is, uh, in my opinion, based on what Jack said, uh, is not the case. They were willing partners, they had partnerships with the government, 
and they wanted to work with them and they wanted their help to censor or, you know, find misinformation, whatever it may be. So uh, last point, and then we can hand it over to Amy, is I also looked at the trend of when Twitter, Facebook, and Google hired all these former uh, alphabet agency people. And it was clear since that 2018 meeting. Okay, so prior to 2018, these like Twitter had two FBI agents working there. Uh, Facebook had about 12, um, you know, of all the agencies. And then Google, I just ran those numbers. They had about eight. After 2018, the numbers just spiked. So uh, after 2018, after the Senate Intel hearing, uh, the uh, Twitter hired, you know, 15 FBI and two CIA. Facebook hired over 110 uh, from all the agencies, FBI, CIA, NSA. And I just ran the numbers on Google. Same exact thing, over 120. And just last year alone at Google, they hired close to 50. Um, so the numbers are, this is all pulled from LinkedIn public profiles. So it's not, you know, there's a trend here. And I finally tied it together with social media's, you know, willingness to work with them. And, and maybe part of working with the government was hiring on their people. So, And that's just what's on LinkedIn. That's just, just what's on clear. LinkedIn. Like, and some of these profiles are private like about 2030. And then some of these people probably don't list CIA or FBI as their background because they're hiding it. You know? <laughs> so you don't know. So the numbers yeah. are probably more. Yeah. So no, a Amy's got a little, Amy, you've got a little bit of a different in here from another massive company, which I would argue given AWS does what it does is sort of the, the same thing. So Amy, I'm going to give you the floor, just introduce yourself and explain to folks what happened with you. And then I, we're definitely going to do tweet by tweet name on that great thread that you did last night, because it's something. Thanks so much, Tracy and name. It's so interesting to hear all of that because I have my own story about looking at LinkedIn and the FBI with Amazon. So um, my husband worked for Amazon web services, which if you're not familiar with, it's a subsidiary of Amazon and it's where the internet lives and Amazon sells cloud computing. It is the basis of all of Amazon's profits from which the rest of the business like rests upon. Um, my husband did real estate for AWS. He started in 2012. AWS's business was transformed in 2013 when they won a $600 million contract to be the cloud provider for the CIA. And from there on, AWS became really like it's kind of a monopoly and that it owns over 50% of the cloud business in the world. Um, and in 2020, um, Amazon broke a contract with a real estate developer. And per the terms of that contract, unless they could prove that the real estate developer committed a felony, they were going to owe him over $100 million in damages. So they broke the contract in February 19th, 2020. They were meeting with federal prosecutors on February 20th, 2020. Amazon, this is related to some data centers that Amazon kept. They don't allege they overpaid for. They just wanted this real estate developer out of the deal. Um, and so they, they went to federal prosecutors and they alleged that my husband conspired with this real estate developer. My husband was never charged with a crime. It's now 2023, but Amazon was able to leverage its relationship 
with federal prosecutors to use civil forfeiture against my family, where the government seized all of our bank accounts, again, without ever charging my husband with a crime or proving it. And they held those accounts for 21 months. We had to pay an enormous amount of money to litigate to get the accounts back. Um, and it's been, and they, there was an armed FBI search warrant of my home. We ultimately had to sell our home. We have four little girls. We sold our home to pay lawyers. We sold our car. We liquidated retirement. We've been at war um, for a long time trying to survive Amazon's attempt to use federal law enforcement to get out of a contract. And, you know, my big question in all of this was how the hell did Amazon have this kind of access to DOJ? And on the one hand, you have the fact that Amazon is paid billions of dollars by the government agencies, by the Department of Defense, by the FBI, by the CIA, by the NSA. But on the other side of it, you also have the fact that they, too, like other big tech companies and social media, are hiring hundreds of former FBI agents and federal prosecutors. I haven't looked into the CIA part of it or the NSA, but, you know, when I started trying to figure out why Amazon was able to essentially, like, call up the government and order civil forfeiture, like they were ordering something off of Prime, um, I just went to LinkedIn and it was page after page after page of FBI agents and federal prosecutors employed by Amazon making 5X what they'd been making at the government. Amy, that's crazy, Amy. I literally just changed my search results and there's over 400. And I never looked at Amazon because I don't see the social media aspect, but there's over 425 uh, former, I have NSA, CIA, DHS, yeah. FBI yeah. that work at Amazon or Amazon Web Services. So I don't know what they do. I haven't really looked well, at Well, a large part of it is they sell. Right. So I, I just and, and again, this is just a Google search. Like it's wild to me how no one tries to hide any of this at this point. But there, from a Google search, I found a woman named Christine Halverson, who was like a 20 year agent in the FBI. And she spoke in 2018 at AWS's big conference called reInvent. And at the conference, Christine is working for the FBI and she is saying Amazon Web Services saved the FBI, like giving them that much credit. And then. I go and look at her LinkedIn, and of course, right now, she works for AWS, and she sells to the government, right? So it's just this revolving door. Amy, will you uh, tell people what uh, happened with the prosecutor that was holding your case? Yeah, so um, the first, pro there's been a number of prosecutors, but the first one was Uzo Asonier, and he, in, in the Eastern District of Virginia, Amazon hired a former federal prosecutor from the Eastern District of Virginia named Patrick Stokes to, and paid him millions of dollars to lobby his former colleagues. Like just boom, boom, go in there, get this done. And Uzo Asonye was the first prosecutor. He was the prosecutor in the Robert Mueller um, prosecution. And Uzo then left during the pendency of the investigation and went to go work for a law firm, Davis Polk, which counts Amazon as a client that makes it millions of dollars. Um, so it just... And isn't that a conflict? I mean, I would think so. But the way law firm partners are paid, they're paid from like the firm profits. So they make money from all of the clients. Um, like, Uzo might not work specifically on an Amazon case, but like he's still making money from Amazon. It's also worth noting that when you say that Stokes was paid to lobby, he was paid to lobby DOJ to take on this case uh, against your husband and the four other defendants. Yes, there's this thing that I, I now know is abnormal that I didn't know. But, you know, Amazon hired Patrick Stokes. He puts together like a 
a pitch deck, like a PDF pitch deck. Like I, I'm in, I work in sales, like, like a sales deck. And he goes to the DOJ, he presents the allegations and then the investigation begins. We do know that Pat's former colleagues in their emails showing this hand selected the prosecutors to work on the case. And we also know now through a series of, you know, through years of litigation that Amazon's lawyers, Pat Stokes and their internal lawyers were able to meet with federal prosecutors over 100 times to lobby for criminal charges in this instance. That is not normal. Like Kyle, as you mentioned, normally like an accuser would go in, meet with DOJ, and then they would go off and conduct their independent investigation. That did not happen here. And for those who don't know, Amazon Web Services, they were hosting Parler. And if you mm-hmm. remember after January 6th, Parler came crashing down because Amazon refused to host them anymore. So that it's not... It's not just, a, oh, well, Amazon does web services. You know, that's something completely separate. Um, just so you know, I just got a text from somebody that told me that uh, Jeff Bezos is looking to sell the Washington Post in order to potentially buy a sports team. So, um, <laughs> but I mean, just, but I mean, that's the thing about like Amazon's so big when they deplatformed Parler. Like, literally, Parler couldn't have a business because AWS broke their contract with Parler. Like, they have the power to destroy and crush companies. Like, how was, like, were people planning J6 on Parler? Sure. They were also doing it on Facebook, right? Like, we know that. And no one deplatformed Facebook. Yeah, that actually came out in the in the uh, Missouri v. Biden case with uh, Rob Flaherty. And, you know, I would argue that there was no planning right, going right. on on Parler. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but... Um, that, that's the excuse that they use ev- everywhere as like their cudgel. And, you know, name, I think maybe a deep dive into AWS might be in order now, given that we're in the social media world. And Amy, do you worry about any repercussions in speaking out about this right now, given that it's not over? It's not over, well, right? So we did get our money back from the civil forfeiture and my husband was never charged. Is an investigation ongoing? I don't really know. But when Amazon didn't get this, the criminal charges, they sued people. So my husband has testified under oath for 24 hours. Like he said what he said. And, you know, I, um, and my husband's not afraid of the truth. And, and, um, and I think that like, honestly, I feel safer speaking out. I feel less safe if Amazon is able to do this to us in the shadows. And what about the case agent that worked on your, case so the main case agent and i will say i'm still afraid of the fbi like i am so i mean the main case agent he was removed from the investigation because they flew him across the country to conduct a search warrant of our home which any agent could have done it didn't have to be him um after months after my husband knew he was the target of an investigation so the agent of course gathered reams of attorney client privileged materials we know he looked at them and so he was removed from the investigation by the DOJ. That that's a first. They usually don't do that. They usually keep them there because. Well, here's the thing, Tracy. They know. didn't remove him. They promoted him. He he got a, a supervisor desk, so he, uh, he he got moved up. He did. That wasn't a punishment, and um, you know that's the nature of how the FBI works today. You know, I will say too, there was another prosecutor that got removed from the investigation because I don't know how to tell this in a short form, but. The prosecutors called and threatened a bunch of Amazon's targets and um, told people not to record the conversation. It was a, it was they. The prosecutors essentially said that if the defendant, if the targets kept defending themselves in Amazon's lawsuit, the civil lawsuit, that they would quote get what they deserve 
and the DOJ would find a way to charge them with something like obstruction of justice, even if they didn't find a crime. It was a wild phone call. That prosecutor, we were told that prosecutor got removed. We were told he was leaving the office and his name just popped up on subpoenas for special counsel, Jack Smith. He's working for special counsel, Jack Smith. Like, I feel like we were lied to completely by the DOJ. You know, they said he was, this, this prosecutor was being punished and he wasn't. That that's unbelievable. So in an unreal, like in a civil case that has nothing to do with the criminal case that's ongoing, they're threatening the defendants in the civil case, not to defend themselves in that case or the reason they did it is normally in normally when an accuser emails with DOJ, like Amazon emails with DOJ, we would never see those emails. If my husband had been charged with a crime, we would have never seen the communications between Amazon and DOJ. But because Amazon sued my husband and others, the communications between Amazon and DOJ were coming to light. The threatening phone call was made the week before Amazon had to provide all of their correspondence with DOJ to the defendants in the lawsuit, and DOJ did not want anyone to see them. That's insane. It's a wild story. Wow. And this is over $100 million, so they have no problem just, like, trashing five people's and their families' lives, which is what people realize. And and that's nothing to them, by the way. Yeah, but it's something to them because they're willing to stomp on five people. Well, no, I mean, money-wise, yeah. financially, that's like a drop in their bucket. Correct me if I'm wrong. Amy. It is, but they don't like losing. They don't like paying out. Like, they think that Amazon is so big that it acts with such impunity. I don't know if you play poker, but there's something in poker called, like, the big, um, the big stack bully. When you get so many chips, you can just do whatever the hell you want. You're not going to lose. And that's Amazon. Like, they make – I think they make, like, Standard Oil look like a mom-and-pop shop. Like, it's ridiculous. They're so big. And they have all the data on so many people that they're able to go and manipulate things in that way as well. So, like, it's not just that they have money. They also have the intellectual and the and the, uh, the the information power. Yeah, and look, like, they have the former head of the NSA, Keith Alexander. He's on Amazon's board making millions of dollars, as is Merrick Garland's mentor, Jamie Gorelick, who was the number two at DOJ. Like, why is the number two at DOJ on Amazon's board? Like, what, that doesn't even make sense. So before this happened, did you learn any of this? Like, was this news to you before you got swept up into this whole nonsense mess that has been going on for years now? Or did you have some awareness of what the federal government was capable of before? I had no idea. And I'm a lawyer and I feel ashamed that I didn't know. And, you know, I like I I knew that Amazon like had the CIA contract because it's public news, you know, stuff like that. But I did not understand like, I did not understand that my husband could be accused of a crime and, like, nobody asked him what happened. Nobody asked him what happened. Nobody, like, nobody asked him a single question. He was accused of a crime. I did not know civil forfeiture was a thing. I did not know that your money could be taken like that. I mean, and it was all just so that he couldn't fight, right? And I just, I think I've realized over the past few years that we don't have a civil, we don't have, a, like, a criminal justice system. We have a legal system. And we have one... Yep that doesn't seek the truth, but seeks to win. And yeah. And they do very often. Oh yeah. I mean, I know that we are so fortunate to still be standing. Like it is, it's, I think, you know, it's a series of events and I believe, you know, our faith that has gotten us here, but we shouldn't have been here. All the odds were against us. It's the perseverance. It's the spirit. 
Um, if for those of you who want to read a really great piece about everything that Amy has gone through, if you go to her account and you click on her pinned tweet and read that article, it's well worth it. This journalist from Entrepreneur chronicled her experience from start to finish. And if you want to hear her um, tell her story, definitely check out Kyle's podcast from today because she she goes into detail about her story with him. And I haven't gotten through the whole thing yet because the day has been hectic, but I'm sure that we're going to be speaking tomorrow. There'll be more here because we always say getting getting light on this stuff is so important, especially when people are brave enough to speak out about it. So God bless you. Thank Amy. you. A shameless plug, Amy, um, and also just a compliment to, to your uh, honesty. But uh, I watched it last night because I just wanted to see how it was. And I thought I'd just listen to a few minutes to see how the audio came out. And um, my wife's looking over and she's like, why do you have tears running down your face? Um, because <laughs> it's, it's really it's really emotional, like how awful these people are willing to take somebody's life and toss it in the grinder simply because of their own interests. There's no other way to say it. And um, and it's a powerful it's a powerful thing to listen to. And it's uh, and it's emotionally, you know, very um, close to my heart as well, because of just just how close it, it mirrors the story that went on with me. Uh, as my my friend Garrett, you know, my friend Steve, who's up on this board, how much they came after us. And so, you know, we felt it in a real way. But I know um, I'm really appreciative of you just giving us the opportunity to kind of share that with people. It's 90 minutes. It goes really fast. I looked up. Friend who's also on here for introducing me to Kyle, who's um, been a, a, a great friend of mine. So thank you. And just to let everybody know, we are from probably or like at least used to be ideologically different uh, yeah. places. Which is fine by me. I mean, listen, this is a big uh, club and we've all got to do the right thing to take down the bad guys, whether you agree with me on government run healthcare or not. Yeah, I, mean, I don't care. I think that like, um, just so everyone knows by difference. So I used to, I was an Obama fundraiser. I spent a lot of my life working for Democrats, but I find myself, I feel politically homeless now, but also I just think that like, it's incredibly dangerous for any, any party, either party to to kind of glam onto the FBI, like the way the progressives are now, it's shocking to me. Um, and I hope that we can all come together and advocate for the reform that all Americans deserve. It's it's the only thing that's going to work is, is this handholding across, across. It's the only thing that's going to work. So, and you are wildly successful in your own right. I mean, I've read your, now your story and I'm like, I need to, I need to talk to you. Like, I need to talk to you. <laughs> hey, I, I like to, I like to help women make money. That's what I do. So, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm your woman. I'm right here. So <laughs> thanks, Amy, so Thank much. You. I appreciate you. And we'll chat tomorrow. You can okay. hang up here until, hang out here until you got to go. I will. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So name, let's hit up your Twitter thread that you did last night. And um, you introduced it at the beginning. If people have joined late, let's do one more quick intro of this before we take it piece by piece. Okay. First, uh, Barry, did you have a question for Amy? I did have a question. It's kind of a naive question, but since there's an attorney and FBI, former FBI agents, I thought maybe it wouldn't sound so stupid if the rest of the audience might be thinking something similar. But when we think about Amazon, for instance, and, and hosting these or choosing not to host these or these um, social media platforms, is there a way to disrupt that industry? I mean, I have no idea how web hosting works and I guess probably many other people don't, but when I think about people like Vivek Ramaswamy who are disrupting like investment funds, right? And taking it off ESG, I guess, is web hosting that hard? Is there a way to like decentralize it or find a way for like good, honest <laughs> Americans to create 
a place where people can go and host their site and not be beholden to some of these powerful companies that are in bed with the government. Um, So that would be my husband's domain, but there are smaller companies that host the web. So, you know, the big ones are Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Oracle, Meta, but there are smaller independent providers. um, And I'll try to look up some resources and share them with the group. Okay. Like with my websites, I always just use like GoDaddy or whatever. But when you think about somebody like Parler, just not being able to have a home, for lack of a better word, to just wonder like, why can't they create their own or can't like, you know, like benevolent billionaires instead of creating all these harmful issues and all these like world economic forum based ideologies behind what they do. Like, why can't we have like a parallel economy where people can still be as rich as they want to be. Billionaires can still make tons of money, but they can do it by hosting good people and good businesses. I I feel like there's this (laughs) strange kind of trajectory that our country has been going towards where it's like people are doing like dirty deeds for money, but there's a lot of money that could be made in good too. And it's just, (laughs) that's where I feel like it's naive, but there has to be a solution. Barry, um, Rumble is now offering hosting, by the way, just so you know, they've built up their back end and they're hosting Truth Social. So there is alternatives um, or are alternatives being built right now. And you're right. 100% agree with you. Um, okay, name, unless there's anyone else on the speakers panel that has a question for Amy. Nope, we're good. Okay, go ahead, name. It's all you. All right. So the thread I did yesterday is pinned at the top. Um, again, like I said earlier, I was trying to find a link or why were, why was there this sudden push or this blitz of, it was over like 300 or so former um, alphabet agency people hired from these three, you know, on these three social media companies. And then when I saw the uh, Jack Dorsey test, testimony in the senate that's tweet number two uh he asked for it he asked for help and uh, said that they've strengthened their partnership with the government wants to strengthen their partnership with law enforcement uh and i guess at that point what's that do you want me to play it yeah go ahead is to to do our work um so that is what we've hold on We've really strengthened our partnership with um, our government agencies since 2016. There are a few areas that we would like to see more strength. We would like a more regular cadence of meetings with our law enforcement partnerships. We would love to understand the secular trends um, that they are aware of and seeing in our peer companies or other mediums um, or more broadly that would inform us about how to act much faster. And we would appreciate as much as we can consolidating to a single point of contact um, so that we are not bouncing between multiple agencies to to do our work. Um, So that is what we found in uh, attempting to do a lot of this new policy and work um, in terms of partnership. But but ultimately it comes back to uh, we need to 
build our technologies to recognize new patterns of behavior and new patterns of attack and understand what they actually mean and then ideally get some help from our law enforcement partners to understand the intent and yeah that 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 shouldn't be happening okay so just so everyone's aware this this was a on foreign influence operations used of social media platforms. So when you hear Jack talking there, he's there, he's not looking for partnerships with law enforcement and government to, you know, go after like say child exploitation or any sort of, you know, that sort of a thing on the internet. It is strictly talking about misinformation and, you know, possibly foreign influence operations on social media. That is the context behind that. Kyle, do you have a question? I was going to add to it because this is the, the, the open door. This is the bridge that allows people in. Um, and, and it's happened in, in other spheres as well. Like in the FBI, it's obviously been like the, the counterterrorism division. But when you have a group that says, hey, we're really concerned about foreign influence and what's getting in the door and how people are looking in from, from outside, you start there. And then you end up in that bridge where it's like, well, there's domestic actors, but they're paid by a foreign actor. And that inevitably leads you to domestic actors that are not paid by anybody else. And that's how you end up in these censorship um, realms. It doesn't matter whether it's censorship in the case of, uh, you know, Facebook or Twitter or anybody else, or if it's investigations in the counterterrorism space where we're seeing like the, you know, domestic violent extremist BS. Um, these are the same tools. Like once the doors open to these communities, they inevitably creep. That's the nature of what, you know, these these government entities do. Steve, do you have a question? I, I just wanted to point out, I think that you that you just said, name. Um, this, this was about foreign intelligence and foreign actors, not about something uh, that I think everybody else would find uh, necessary, like uh, child exploitation uh, and child pornography issues. Uh, having been worked on that violation, uh, I can tell you that in dealing with social media, uh, they are extremely uncooperative when it comes to seeking, you know, account information. They they always are very uh, loads it to provide more than than uh, than you request and at the same time the, the interfaces that they have are very slow and and they're even uh, quick to pull the trigger on notifying account holders that that you might be looking at them uh, criminally you know and, and if that's the case then all of a sudden you have the the hook off, the fish on the hook and then uh, it, it escapes so it just kind of shows where the priorities are, even from from Twitter standpoint or from social media standpoint, uh, that this is a obviously a cause that they they believe in. Yeah, I, actually, to caveat what Steve just said, just even in my current position, what I do, and then looking at how easy it was for them to just like send emails about censoring people. I mean, I have to go through a process through Instagram and all these companies, and like Steve was saying, I mean, they they kind of push back on things, and it deals with actual real crimes. Um, whether it be like, you know, uh, organized type of units or crime units or whatever, um, just to kind of get like IP addresses and all that just for locations. I mean, so it, it is definitely interesting that it was as easy as just sending emails about, you know, blocking somebody or censoring people over just like speaking and stuff like that. And I'll keep saying this. They created the Disinformation Governance Board to be able to better handle all of this because once name's going to get into this in a second, but CISA was created or basically was tasked this function and was overwhelmed. So go ahead to the next one that name. Okay. Um, hang on one second. So this, so CISA was started or I guess Obama signed a executive order giving the DHS 
uh, I don't know the terminology, but like giving them the funding or authorization to sort of create this unit of cyber security. And then Trump, didn't Trump sign something into law about? Yeah. Yes. Anyway, so yeah, Trump didn't really know what he was getting into, but he signed a bill that created CISA back in November. And then that was their actual founding, which was two months after this um, Senate Intel hearing. So um, after hearing what uh, Jack said in that testimony, like number three, you know, I, I don't see this at all as Twitter being pressured. Twitter invited this and wanted more um, help with the government and tighter and a more expansive partnerships with law enforcement and government. And then he did uh, request a single point of contact contact because Twitter, again, is not as large as Facebook and Google. So they, their trust and safety is just not a big department. So they can't handle the, you know, the, the barrage of requests from multiple agencies. So, you know, again, two months after this Senate hearing, CISA was signed into or, you know, founded and opened up for business. Um, and then I guess number five, uh, and then I, and then again, I started sort of tying in my former or my prior threads of when all these ex-agents were or analysts or officers were hired by these companies so since 2018 like after this intel uh hearing by with jack uh twitter hired 15 former fbi and cia agents so was that part of the help that he requested it's just kind of an open question i don't want to i try not to make assumptions in my threads I write them in a specific way. And then um, I asked Elon, of course, do you still have these partnerships and, you know, with law enforcement and CISA and whatnot? And then number seven, Sandberg talks. Doesn't say as much as Jack, but, you know, she does say that she, uh, in part of their effort to censor misinformation, they do receive hints from law enforcement. Um, and then, of course, since 2018, Facebook hired over 100 um, former uh, employees from FBI, CIA, whatnot. And then their main hire was, uh, that would be number nine, was Aaron Berman. Um, I've mentioned him several times. I mean, he's he had a very high-ranking position at the CIA. This guy used to write presidential daily briefs. Uh, the descriptions in uh, on his own LinkedIn page of what he did. I mean, he was way up there. Uh, he would do he would lead briefings for cabinet members, uh, senior National Security Council officials, members of Congress. Um, I mean, he's he he jumped right from CIA seventeen years straight to the head guy at misinformation policy, trust and safety at Facebook. So that's the guy managing misinformation and sort of controlling the narrative at Facebook. Um, I don't know him, so I don't, I'm not going to say anything bad about him. I don't, you know, so I'm very careful what I write about that sort of thing. And then I jumped into um, Attorney General Landry. Uh, he's got that case. Uh, I know, Tracy, you've been following that, you know, really closely. He's suing the Biden administration, but. Last week, he released a transcript of the deposition of Brian Scully, and Brian Scully is basically the main guy at CISA, 
uh, in charge of the mis or disinformation team. And Brian was the one. Uh, so I just put out some clips or snippets from the deposition. Uh, he, Brian testified since 2018 that CISA started having regular meetings between, you know, basically right from the get-go when CISA opened up, they started holding these conference calls with social media platforms and all the federal partners. Um, and that turned out to be, you know, DOJ, FBI, ODNI, DHS mainly. Uh, and then number 12, I thought was very interesting. Can I stop uh, you before 12? Yeah, go ahead. 2018, 2019, um, there were outside groups working in concert with the government that released a list of names. It was like 200 people that they claimed were tweeting about voter fraud. It was right before the midterms when this happened. And it was like basically spread out among all of all of the legacy media outlets to talk about these 200 accounts that tweeted all about um, voter fraud. So I took them and I took about 30 of them and I started searching through the, the ones that were left that didn't get banned automatically. But I searched through their Twitter accounts and tried to find the voter fraud uh, mentions. And then I compared them to how many tweets they had made in total in their entire you know history. And I, I debunked every single one that I found. So a lot of the times this cooperation in quotes isn't even resulting in anything actionable by any standard. It's literally just a method to target anybody that they don't like. Sorry. Next one. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I think most of it, most of this effort was to control the narrative. They, they call it misinformation, but they were, and then, you know, if you guys have all seen my Facebook thread, I go into detail of, Aaron Berman and everything I found is all public. Anyone could have found all this information, but you know, when uh, I'll just talk about this for a second, but the YouTube clip that Aaron Berman talked about what Facebook's doing for COVID, he was very detailed and clear how they, they get their information from uh, health organizations, which I assume CDC, WHO, whatnot. And they basically amplified the what he called the authoritative authoritative uh, information. So they pushed, they made sure, you know, whoever uses Facebook on your feed that you're seeing what they want you to see that is pro, you know, the COVID narrative and pro vaccines so that people would get vaccines. And then anything that was anti-narrative would be deamplified or warning labels would be added or outright suspension and shutdown of private groups or what whatnot. So back to the thread number 12, CISA made Facebook the industry lead. So um, in this deposition, Brian Scully would have private uh, calls with Facebook to set the agenda for the bigger call with the rest of government agencies and social media companies. So I just thought that, again, was interesting. You know, what was, you know, and I asked, was Aaron Berman the primary contact at Facebook and did he help set the agenda? Maybe it's a coincidence. I don't know. Who knows? But Facebook was in charge of this effort. Facebook was basically the partner with CISA to set the agenda for these conference calls with the government and social media. Um, I think and I Facebook's found that the biggest, so. What's crazy sense. is we had this discussion in DM, but I found that super interesting because if you look at the Flaherty 
um, dep- uh, results from Discovery, the emails. Flaherty, who's at the top here, outside of CISA, is constantly scolding Facebook that they're not doing a good enough job. So from CISA's vantage yeah. point, Facebook is the lead. From Flaherty in the White House's standpoint, they certainly are not which is interesting to me because you'd think that they'd be on the same page, but it's government, and I'm sure Kyle and Steve can attest, and Joe and and and, and well, everyone else. <laughs> what I'll say is, is my assumption, and I think this is, like, pretty obvious, um, is these conference calls with CISA and the rest, you know, all of the government agencies, FBI and DHS and NSA, or I don't know if NSA was on the call, but ODNI was on the call, um, yeah, it was DOJ, FBI, ODNI, and DHS mainly. Um, but they were basically guiding Facebook, Twitter, and, you know, go back to like number 13 on my thread. Uh, uh, Brian testified that Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft, Google, and Reddit were regular participants. And he believes sometimes LinkedIn was on there, which is kind of weird. Um and then he said there was some other, maybe you know, but I don't. He didn't list any other specifics. So they they were basic, in my opinion, they were guiding content moderation policies to these social media companies on you know misinformation and whatnot. It's pr- pretty obvious. So, and the meetings were held. You know, skip down. Then I asked an open question to Elon Musk if he's you know because he put out a tweet. This is in number fourteen telling CISA he was responding to Alex Stamos who works over at CISA or in some form called him a propaganda platform but Twitter was um, on these calls every month or bi-weekly with CISA so I asked him if he's still participating he's not going to answer but that's fine um, I go down to like number 15 16 and already covered those and then 17 was interesting because now it now it all ties together what we've seen in the Twitter files. The main person that was that established uh, a relationship with Yoel Roth at Twitter was Elvis Chan. And on these CISA calls, uh, Brian testified that Elvis Chan was basically the FBI's point man on these, you know, monthly or biweekly calls that Facebook and CISA had with the rest of social media. Yeah, and Brian Scully had such a hard time remembering his name that he had to be prodded for it. Exactly. Um, which is which is a common occurrence in these depositions. They don't remember anything unless they're directly confronted with it because, you know, not remembering something isn't a crime, but purposefully obstructing the information is. Um, sorry, didn't mean to add into your No, mind. no, that, that's fine. Interrupt whenever you want because you, you have more – you have interesting things, obviously. But one thing I didn't put in the thread, but I'll, I'll talk here. And Tracy, I don't know if you've gone through the deposition yet, but uh, let me actually search for it real quick. Like, it's funny how they he named some people of, who attended these meetings. But when they asked um, if ODNI, which is Office of Director of National Intelligence, was on the call, um, they stopped this deposition. And Brian yep. would not say... Yes. Um, and they, the council like objected to it. Um, yeah. So here, like and, on number 34, just write that down when you go back to it. He basically said, like, they believe uh, for the right, re- what did they say? I will instruct the witness not to answer the question on the basis of National Security Act. The information is extraordinarily protected. So they would not name any officials 
on the, that were on the call from the Office of Director of National Intelligence. They also so. wouldn't name their own CISA employees that were on the on the on the twenty four seven exactly. Shifts. And yeah. so now the you know Landry has filed a motion to compel to because they got it out of them like they did another sidebar name at the end of this deposition and refused to name an intern that was working for both CISA and the Stanford Observatory. Yeah, there was two in, interns from Stanford working there. Yeah, both yeah. on both ages, both places at the same time on both payrolls. Yeah. And so now um, Landry has filed a motion to compel with the judge asking the judge to force CISA to respond with this information because CISA had been withholding it completely and said it didn't exist. Yep. So they started having these conference calls in 2018, but in 2022, ahead of the midterms, they started actually sharing or flagging what they, what did they, the term they use, um, uh, switchboarding or something. They started, CISA actually started flagging certain posts at misinformation and sharing that with the social media. And then they also, for the bulk of the work, they farmed that out to EIP, which is the Election Integrity Project. Um, and that's run by Stanford, uh, University of Washington, Graphica, Atlantic Council. And uh, can I... Koa the Great did like a real in-depth thread on that. So I didn't want to like dive deep into that. But EIP was this election integrity project. They were the main source who flagged all what they thought was misinformation and was flooding that back to Twitter and and Facebook and whatnot. And yeah. Twitter, I guess, again, because of staffing, it was just too much for them to handle. So while in the Twitter files by like Matt Taibbi and the other ones, it may seem like there was pushback from Twitter. They Twitter's not big enough. So they just didn't have the staff to keep, you know, meeting these requests, but they were not like being pressured or forced. They, they wanted this, you know, back to like what Jack said, they wanted this um, partnership and they were willing to go along with it. I think they were willing to go along with it a lot more once they started getting paid. Yeah, it, there you go. Exactly. So, so that, there was there was that a, makes a sense. you know there was sort of a back and forth between the government. Well, we'll pay you to do it. Okay, now we can staff up and and we can be paid for this work. Um, just an Good aside, if we have a ton of information about all of this stuff too at Uncover DC. You can use any keyword in search, and you'll find we've been you, uh, one of our reporters, Wendy Mahoney, has been covering this for like almost two years. So we have a ton of work on, on all of these back-end organizations, how CISA was working with them, et cetera, so on and so forth. And I'm sure, too, you know, I mean, the, the whole point of CISA, I think, was around elections. Is that right, Tracy? Like in well, the beginning? It started that way, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because of such an outrage, Trump got elected. So they're like, well, how, how do we stop this from happening again? And so they blamed it on not that Hillary Clinton was just a terrible candidate. It was, you know, Russian, you know, troll farms and misinformation and all this BS. So they literally started a um, agency to do it. And social media worked directly with, they partnered with the government. They, these are all people on the left and they didn't want Trump reelected. So this effort was literally to not get Trump reelected in general. Having said that, what I wrote at the, the very last um, on the thread was 
while they had this set up, they obviously turned it into they have all these partnerships. So besides just Trump and elections, it spread. It is now it's every it's on every topic now, Um, you know, you know, covid vaccines, climate change, race relations, Russia, Ukraine, like every single hot, but, you know, button issue like they're still doing this and framing the narrative of, of the whole point is like the government is controlling what we see when you're scrolling through Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I mean, I don't know what's going on at Twitter anymore, but, or Google search YouTube. And they're making sure that their narrative is front and center and that what is counter to the narrative is going to be very difficult to find because they're, de-boosting and shadow banning or suspending people and and back to google i didn't put them in the thread because they didn't show up that day to testify at the uh, senate but they have three former cia officials running their misinformation department as well so facebook and cia misinformation is managed by former cia perfect kyle so name i think this this segues really well into what um what we heard from from amy which is that they're not hiding it and it is right out there in the open and it also segues into something that tracy has done such a really good job of highlighting when cisa um you know puts a term like cognitive infrastructure uh in their in their mission set that tells you that not only do they think that that they're going to be dealing with the infrastructure of actual you know the physical the wires the uh, the actual data that's that's uh, crossing around and and that's going through servers and cloud and so on but they actually think that they should be policing and and regulating what it is that you are thinking and the only way to do that is to, to regulate what you see and so it's such an important way like they'll, they'll tell you right out in the open what they think their mission set is the question is is are people uh brave enough to actually believe them because that's what they're justifying their funding based on and the the depth of quote-unquote cognitive infrastructure is infinite and so it gives them an infinite mission set. Um, and, and that's why all these things keep coming out. Like, it, it shouldn't shock anybody at this point. And, and obviously, the people that are probably in this space are not shocked. Uh, but they should be appalled. And we should be trying to take action about it. And I, I'm really just grateful that you guys are out there exposing this stuff and doing the deep dives into the places and finding the wording that, uh, that you know, government entities and, and private entities that are cooperating with them are using. Because it's very important to see what it is they're actually saying about themselves. Because I'm sure they're being honest about it. You, you know what's crazy, Kyle? Somebody, uh, a good friend of mine, Adam, just um, shot me a text on Signal and said, all of this while the solar winds hack was ongoing, maybe they should have been spending their resources somewhere else, because that's true. And we dug into solar winds a little bit. That was the most massive, huge thing. And barely any attention was paid to that solar winds hack. Barely any. I mean, it, it is all about priorities. It's about where their funding is. It's about what their motivations are. And, uh, and you know, to Steve's point earlier, and Name also touched on it, it's like they could be doing any number of things that we would all say are good and we want our government involved in. But they don't have any interest in that. They're not interested in doing, you know, stopping the exploitation of children. They're not interested in stopping fraud against the government. Like, if you guys knew the amount of money from the uh, payday protection loans that went out <laughs> that were being scammed, just wholesale scams – um, by by federal you know entities and the bandwidth to even handle them if it's not like a high seven figure or like a mid eight figure uh, scam they don't even touch it like people walked away with millions and sometimes tens of millions of dollars they had zero employees before the COVID you know thing happened and we printed all this money and literally handed it to people sometimes foreigners 
who just opened up a, you know, had physical space with no one coming into it. Like, cause my team was actually dropping video vans outside of these like empty warehouses where they were claiming suddenly they had like 150 or 250 employees and they had had zero business up until that point. And we just walked away with that. And that's not what we're spending our time on. We're spending our time on what you guys think and, and what people are, are willing to uh, believe and whether or not we can justify foreign influence. And so we can go after, you know, individuals and censor their speech. It's just, it's insane. When does it end? It just keeps going. Um, n- name. When you did your initial thread, the very first one that you did, how many of those people that you found have now locked down their socials? Um, on the FBI one? Hang on a second. I would say there was like about 17 or so and probably... 14 are scrubbed, but I, I archive them all, but I'm yeah, like almost all of them or they changed their name or they took FBI off as their experience or Twitter off as their work experience. Like in some way or another, almost every single one of them, except for maybe two changed their work experience or just outright deleted their LinkedIn accounts. As I said, I, I archive them all, but again, you know, I'm not going to repost it because I don't know these people. I'm not trying to like, this isn't an effort to like mess with people's lives, obviously. And I'm not, there's no obvious accusations. They're doing anything wrong. It was simply just stating facts of like, there are 17 other people at Twitter that were former FBI. But the problem was my initial thread on the FBI New York Post, they did an article on it, and now that is included in uh, Jim Jordan's first investigation and letter he sent to Christopher Wray. Like, literally, the New York Post article with my thread, and and Jim Jordan lists all 15 of those FBI agents. And he wants to know all communications between, if there were any, between those agents and people currently working at the FBI. So that's probably why. But, yeah, most of them scrubbed their LinkedIn accounts right away. And so I just want to say two things. Number one, this is why independent journalism and what we do on socials is so important. Like you don't have to have some big media company behind you to, to make, you know, news that's basically, you know, either national or global. That's number one. Number two, um, the only reason why I mentioned that is because you would, you know, a lot of people have said, well, what, you know, former IC folks aren't allowed to make a living. Of course they are. But you wouldn't think that they'd be trying to hide it after it was found out if they weren't worried about it. It's the same thing like with what Libs of TikTok does, exposing the crazy TikToks of the left. They get mad about it and lock themselves down afterwards. But we're just showing what you're doing. If you're not proud of it, why are you doing it, right? So that's <laughs> that's the biggest thing. Like I'm not, you know, no, none of us would run away from anything that we've, you know, investigated or, or, or written about. Um, Michael has his hand up. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, thank you for. Uh, oh, sorry, I didn't put my hand up again. Um, <clears throat> thank you for letting me speak. I uh, I was talking with Name a little bit uh, yesterday and the day before, but uh, amazingly, I was able to connect with Jim Jordan's office, and I will be testifying on uh, behalf of this nine one one emergency report. But what I found most damning was that when I submitted to Twitter saying, you know, you guys are reply deboosting, um, you're shadow banning, you're doing all these things to my account. Uh, their reply back was like basically one of, I, I put it at the bottom 
um, uh, in the in the uh, tweet replies. But if you read it, it's it's kind of unbelievable what they said back. They basically said Twitter reserves the right to censor whoever we want, whenever we want, for whatever reason we want. And uh, even if even if it, if that's you telling the truth, um, you know we're we're going to censor you. Like, and then if, if if it harms Twitter's bottom line, basically. So I emailed back saying, well, I'm going to be going to testify before Congress on this report. And all I've been doing is putting out this information about this uh, Swedish company that's controlling our M1 emergency services and they sponsor terrorism. So in my reply, I, I posted, so does that mean Twitter also sponsors the same thing? Um, and suddenly, like within minutes, uh, they un, unbanned, un, or not unbanned, undeboosted, reply deboosted, all of those things. They took them all off my account. So it's almost like, you know, kind of a, a sense of showing these corporations that, like, if we're going to pay to be members of your, you know, social service and you're still going to censor us for telling the truth. That's absolutely ridiculous. And I just think that that has to come to a stop. I've, I've seen a lot of that happening too. I don't know about your name, but like a lot of people are like, Oh, you know, I'm search banned happened to Steve. He was search banned and everything banned for like a week or so. Um, but it, it, it seems to fall off. Like it's almost like once people catches that somebody catches that it's happened, it, it it gets fixed. It's good for a little while, and then some somebody in the corner puts it back on. Um, but that's really great news that you're going to be testifying. Um, when is that happening? Do you know? Uh, in the next quarter, they said so. We're we really have to prepare because it's obviously pretty pretty important. Um, but what we need to do is create like a media blitz and a campaign, uh, bringing awareness to it because these are the very people that control like the literal nodes on the internet. So if they want to, uh, censor you from like a trademark perspective, they can very easily do that. And, uh, so it's, it becomes this battle for us to get our voices back and essentially implement, uh, what I see as the best solution, uh, being an internet bill of rights because on the internet, we just don't have rights. Uh, the, you know, the companies can do as they please apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So I'm going to, I'm going to share a little bit of a personal story. I told you Tracy and Kyle and Jim is up here too. Um, I, my brother helped me, you know, sort of with the language on a lot of these threads. I did most of the research on them. I did the rough drafts and then he sort of helped me. um, He just helped me out a little bit, but he has an account on Twitter under his real, you know, real name. He never tweets. He follows about a hundred accounts or so. And um, I think only, you know, our mom and maybe a friend is following him. He has two followers. It's, it's really a nothing. He's had the account for 15 years on Twitter, never tweets because, well, we'll get to that the other day, like uh, five days ago or a week ago, he was just randomly suspended. No reason. It's a private account that he doesn't tweet from. And so we were talking about it. I'm like, well, what was going on? And he said that, you know, so Aaron Berman and Nick Rossman were on had Twitter accounts and he was all over their accounts sort of searching for the tweets that they made. That, that was it. And then I posted my threads on Facebook and Google and then a week ago, my brother's account was just suspended and they gave him Twitter, gave him just the most ridiculous. They basically accused him of being a bot of like following people, unfollowing to like gain followers. But it is, is a, it is a read only account of his. 
and they ended up unsuspending him. But like they, there's, there are bad actors still at Twitter. I don't know who they are. I don't know if they're the FBI agent. I don't know who it is, but in trust and safety, there are people in there not doing good things. And I don't know how Elon Musk is going to um, sort of root them out, but not good. Go ahead, Steve. That's crazy, by the way. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I mean, I think my, my, my wife's uh, trials and tribulations with her Facebook account or, or that story is kind of out there, unless, Tracy, unless you want me to touch on it again. Um, but before I do that, uh wanted to uh, go back to what we were talking about with with, uh, with Jim Jordan. Um, I had the opportunity to, to meet the man last night briefly, um, but in, in seeing his uh, his interfacing with the media in the last week where he's he's named myself and, and, and Kyle – uh, on uh, on Joe Pag show uh, on on Sean Hannity show on Dan Bongino show, uh, I think that uh, th- that we're kind of breaking through um, to to these guys. It's it's I I, I think it, it is registering with them. Um, and you know he he knew me last night um, and actually you know dropped both of our names in his in his speech at, at, at an event in front of two thousand people. So I, I think that there has been progress made. You know, certainly on on, uh, on Kyle and our and, and my part, and I think you know, with these these issues that are being brought forward as as these spaces are taking off and they're they're snowballing, um, I think that that's that's going to be a natural outgrowth that uh, it'll it'll reach his ears for these these issues as well. Yeah, I mean, again, we have to just keep on screaming and make sure it doesn't go away, and and that's the thing. Like, if we get tired of it and stop talking about it and not keep hammering it, it goes away and then they get their pass and they don't have to do anything. Um, the farm, go ahead. Yeah. So name, name redacted was talking about, um, you know, there's still being bad actors at Twitter. And, you know, I think that's pretty much clear to everybody. And, um, you know, I wanted to add to that, just the organizational structure of Twitter and kind of what's been released in the Twitter files so far, right? Like how they have all these different teams, whether it's the, um, the global policy teams, they have their escalation team, they have trust and safety, they have, you know, uh, all these different teams. Then external to that, they have partnerships with all these public um, government facilities, right? The FDA or the CDC or whomever declaring, you know, what's misinformation. And then beyond that, they have the AI, um, you know, model building that they that they conduct, right? And training manuals that they create for deep learning and machine learning that goes on. And at that point, the public agencies are able to kind of absolve themselves of guilt. And so someone at the FBI who's employed by the FBI could come in and say, we need to ban, you know, this word or this phrase or all these variations and so on. Then there's no hands-on, like FBI didn't do that kind of in a way. They're able to get out of trouble. And we don't know the scale of that. And without really drilling into a Twitter files, like data AI sort of area, we're not going to get there just yet. And so I think just, we got to be more patient, but I know people have been asking Musk for that, but if you guys, you know, have a sort of way to do that, I think making that a key area would be really good. I'll stop there. Thanks, Tracy. Sure thing. Good point. Good point. Um, Hey, name, am I allowed to tell folks real quick before I call on Michael again, our little brief history together from years before the ban? Mm-hmm. No, okay. I'll tell I'll tell them another time. You 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 little put me on this. I'll put you on the spot next time. Okay, go well, ahead, Tra- Michael. Tracy and I have known each other through Twitter and other things for like what seven years now. So it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, Michael, go ahead. So I actually, uh, last week, just before I'd gotten the news that I was going to be able to testify, uh, I had a whistleblower come forward from uh, basically the New York's NSA, uh, 60 Hudson Street. And crazy enough is last night I was talking to him and he told me uh, that he was part of the team that actually implemented the AI that would auto suspend or auto uh, suppress accounts. So I could actually have him come to the next space that you guys are doing if you want. Um, and have him speak and kind of talk about that entire, uh, you know, because I know your, your next space is on fifth generation warfare. So um, he would, you know, he has no problem talking about all of that stuff. Um, and it's really super interesting because when it's not your hands on the dial, right, you're able to call that technology, put it through a third party, and then now you're not, now you're abridging the Fourth Amendment, right? Uh, and they do it through that Fourth uh, Fourth Amendment third party doctrine. So. You know, it's crazy that you mentioned that. It might be a good time if you're okay with the name. Steve wrote a column for us a couple days ago that was so interesting. And I was like, how the hell is he going to make this leap? And he somehow made it. And it's right in this realm. Steve, do you want to talk about your Third Amendment um, argument that you're making? Because it's so – it's crazy, but it's – it's give us everyone a summary in case they haven't read it. Sure, sure. Uh, kind of in response to Ray being over at Davos, uh, and I, I knew everybody was really uh, upset about the comments he made about the collaboration that the FBI has with with private industry, and you know that, we all know that means uh, social media and big tech. Uh, and and I know that everybody's going to jump all over uh, First Amendment concerns and, and Fourth Amendment concerns, but uh, there's a reason our founders put the Third Amendment uh, the, as the third out of that ten, pretty close to the front. And I think it's it's worth considering the merits of it in light of, uh, of new technology. So we have, you know, access to these, these virtual assistants like these Amazon Echoes and, and Series, and then we have social media uh, apps on our phones. And if, if we interface with the government, you know, back in those days, you really your, your, your main interaction with government was, was military. I mean, it was a red coat. It was a, it was a general. It was a appointed governor of your territory uh, who had been in the military. Uh, but now, you know, with this fifth-generation warfare that, Kyle and I talked about the other night in his podcast, uh, you know, government's so much more. So really, it's any representative of the government. And if you're using these devices uh, in your home and the content of your private uh, conversations and, and, and postings is intercepted uh, by, uh, the, by private companies and then just given over to the government for their review, there, there's really no, essentially no difference between that and a... Uh, a British red coat sitting there jotting down notes on you or listening with his ear up against the wall. Uh, so just analyzing the third amendment through a, through a privacy um, and intelligence gathering issue, I think is worthy of doing now. It was a brilliant column. If you haven't seen it, not just because it's on my website, but because it was a brilliant freaking column because Steve's a brilliant writer. Seriously. He pumps out stuff and I'm like, wow, um, you can, what did you name it? Um, I forget the title of it. Do you remember? Uh, Let's talk quartering soldiers. Yes. Yes. That was it. It's right up at Uncover DC under articles. Um, awesome job, Steve. And he was on Emerald Robinson today. And actually, I was too. So Emerald talked about you in my uh, spot, Steve, as well. Um, I think you did a great job. Okay, Justin, your hands up. And Kyle. And then I want to hear from um, Jim and, and Mike too before we go. Hey, Tracy, thanks for having me on. Name Redacted, thank you so much for doing that thread yesterday. Again, a lot of the information you had was already out there, but the fact that you were able to weave all of those myriad pieces together was so invaluable, and that's really what's needed right now. I mean, there are so many lawsuits 
so many FOIAs coming in. I mean, I'm just searching document cloud daily for different keywords, and I'm so surprised when I sort by published date how much new information there is on this stuff. Uh, and, and I think that's that's what we really we, – we need both that historical weaving where you put Scully's, uh, you know, uh, deposition in context. But we also I, – I, and I, I don't know exactly how we're going to do this because most of the information that we're tracking down now is a year or two old. It's kind of historical crimes, if you will, that we're, uh, you know, we're, we're forensically putting together at this crime scene. But what's really needed also is someone who's kind of on top of where the pieces are moving right now. Like I know it was mentioned that uh, who is it? Uh, oh, the the vice president uh, Vijaya Gade, right? Don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right or not. Forgive me. I hope she does. But uh, the idea is, I, I understand that she's contracting now with the CISA. As you have all of uh, you know these these various characters, uh, the former. Uh, general counsel there of, of of twitter all moving on to new places we need to know kind of where they're going so we can keep a an is a listening ear there because those could be very very important moves uh, and i don't know if anyone has suggestions on how best to do that but we do need a, a i think document cloud has become the de facto sort of centralized place for all, all the foia and discovery uh, and deposition products there but we, we do need more siphoning into that. So thanks for doing that. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate that. I mean, I it, it is a little complicated because when I was writing the thread for yesterday and going through the deposition and taking screenshots, I'm trying to put it in order, like in the correct, like kind of chronological order for the reader. And I'm I'm constantly getting seeing new information and then moving things around. And it, yeah, it's it's work. It, it definitely helps. To like- yeah, if someone has like a lot of energy and wants to put together the master timeline. I know uh, Epoch Times had a fantastic infographic on the Twitter files the other day. I thought that was done very well. Uh, and e- Epoch is going great, doing great stuff over there under Jan and crew. Like it, they had, uh, I, I just checked the uh, the depositions. I haven't put it out in the tweet yet, but they they uh, they basically foiled the FDA. Uh, for any information on the uh, the infamous horse ad that they ran about ivermectin, right? And they came back with a bunch of emails where the internal comms people and web people were crowing and just just laughing and giddy over how many new followers they got on that big push, and that, then they turned it into an ad. It was a little bit disgusting knowing the background of what uh, what transpired there, but. Just oh. those sort of pinpoint pieces are really valuable. How great as they laugh while people die all over the place because they can't get access exactly. to ivermectin. Yeah, this is life. hilarious, Justin. You are correct. Vijaya God Gotti, the you know, the one right. she's actually right. she she's on SIS's board now. Yeah, she's oh. on this, right, right. We we gotta keep are track of those players by the yeah, Twitter. I'm looking at her right here. Unbelievable. It's not unbelievable, it's actually. CISA.gov, and it's the CISA Cybersecurity Advisory Committee. And I haven't looked at all these people, but yeah, she's now no longer at Twitter, and she got her you know, little golden parachute paycheck, and now she's on the board of the CISA committee. Disband CISA. Kyle, go ahead. Yeah, unbelievable. if that doesn't tell you that these people are activists and that they are attempting to accomplish a, a goal and it doesn't really matter where they're at to do it, that that uh, nothing will. Um, so we're talking about a lot of the things that are in the in the light that are the overt pieces of it that are um, that are, you know, publicly 
being discussed. I, I wanted to kind of also shed a, a, a maybe just an image on it and put people's mind aware that the FBI director obviously talked about this at Davos, the, the danger, the quote unquote danger of private technologies that can be abused and, you know, make it difficult for the FBI to do their job spying on you. And, and that's been a, a concern of the bureaus going back at least maybe 2014. It might have been 2013 when Jim Comey was talking about the Going Dark Initiative, which is to say that the, the bureau was concerned about end to end encrypted actives, um, you know, privacy type minded companies, which we should all be using. Um, I, it, you know, if you're not taking things out of the DMs and going to places where you actually have some control over your data, then you're a fool at this point. And, um, you know, they have names for these things because they're projects, they're priorities. They are, they are on the docket and being discussed. And uh, I wanted to throw it over to George. If you guys don't see George is up on the panel here. Uh, he's under senior chief EXW. Uh, George was a, an SIA, a senior intelligence analyst or a supervisory intelligence analyst at the bureau, also with the NSA previously. And, uh, and I know he has a lot of uh, information on this. He's got his hand up. So it's a perfect time to for have him weighing in. But, you know, these things have been talked about for a long time, like over a decade. And uh, it's worth knowing that they're out there. And then you've got to go out there and do your own research to decide, you know, what sort of risks you want to uh, incur when you're when you're engaging online as well. Go ahead, George. Okay, so thanks, Kyle. So I just want to adjust the optic here that, that folks, the aperture that people are using to, to look at all these shenanigans that are going on. And a brief history will help. So I did a year in Gitmo as a Saudi Arabian uh, team, non-commissioned officer in charge, and then uh, fleeted up as the officer in charge acting. And I also did tours down there. And we used to joke around during these tours in Gitmo. And we used to call Gitmo Operation Sideshow in that it was a diversion to draw the media and the public's attention away from what eventually became known, but not fully known, the black sites that the CIA were conducting with other foreign intelligence agencies. So I want to adjust the optic here when people are looking at these this migration from the intelligence community over to Silicon Valley uh, and the Kabul over there in that look at them, look at the federal government more as the storefront, as the face that you see. The work, real work that's being done is being done in Silicon Valley. The real work that is being done that the NSA to some extent was cut off from or restricted when they uh, got their, their wings clipped on the Utah data center. Um, but these marketing companies, AWS, Facebook, all of them, they hoover up more information than the intelligence communities could even dream of as little as 10 years ago. Um, so I, 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 as, you're, as you're doing your research, I, I, uh, and I will as well, adjust my optic and look at it more of that what takes place in Washington is more operation sideshow and where the real work is being done is off books out of the line of congressional oversight in the private sector. And, and the, the line between like, they're not following legal process to get this information. Correct. Uh, George. So there's a free flow of information without subpoena court order or anything moving back and forth. Right. And then that all that can be data mined, synthesized, uh, married up with, uh, higher levels of uh, intelligence that's been collected um, and then formulate policies. Um, so, you know, this is, like I said, it, it's, uh, I'm convinced based on 40 years, over 40 years in the business that, that what we're seeing now in, in Washington is Operation Sideshow. It's, 
it's it's a storefront, just like a web page front page. Um, all the real work is being done elsewhere outside the scrutiny of congressional oversight. So if we're receiving all this information from whether it's court ordered subpoenas or, you know, whatever, what aren't what aren't we getting? It's basically like an underworld of unaccountable bureaucracy um, shielding itself as as big tech, because from what you're saying, basically, mm-hmm. big tech is is really the IC and covert. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah. they're, they're accountable to no one. And since there's no um, with all due respect to the, 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 the to the men and women on this uh, forum here, um, there really is no real independent journalism going on where people are actually digging around trying to gain some sort of uh, insight as to what's going on. So there, there's no accountability. There's no accountability from the protectors of the First Amendment, and there's no accountability from a congressional oversight standpoint. And and we're seeing this. So we, and it, again, it's Operation Sideshow. We can scream and holler all we want, and we and I will. I am working with uh, Congressman Jordan's office as well. But hey, Jordan, it's not, it's not the whole iceberg. Most of the iceberg, four fifths of it, is underwater. George, can you speak to um, the story that was just recently released in Arizona, where they had that sort of undercover database of transactions that the FBI was using? I don't know if we covered that yet. Uh, I was 90 seconds late to the call, um, so if it was covered in that first 90 seconds, I missed it. Um, but I cannot speak uh, eloquently on that uh, topic. Tracy, can Sorry. you? <laughs> eloquently, no. But basically, um, if I'm not mistaken, I read this story quickly. You know what, Farm? Why don't you you tell everyone what it's about since you're the one yeah. who asked the question? I'll, I'll fill in whatever gap I can. Yeah, I'm not I'm not an expert by any means, but my understanding was um, this is sort of one program, um, sort of like what George was describing, where there's an external database being created. Um, you can imagine sort of financial transactions in there, and it can be perused um, without subpoena. Um, I don't remember exactly what was in there, but you know, some probable candidates for for data that might go into something like that would be you know gun purchases or. Um, you know, your Substack purchase history, right? Like who you're reading about. Um, and then the FBI and other organizations without a subpoena can go in there and collect data. Um, and because of the structure of the underpinning or underlying, I don't know, legal framework that they're using, um, they're sort of able to intrude without um, the normal guardrails that are supposed to exist um, that would otherwise be there. Yeah, this is the normal stuff that any company pays money for to develop more marketing strategies, strategies, and product development, buyer behavior, stuff that has been going on literally for decades, um, but now, because they can suck, they, meaning private sector, can suck all that stuff up just when you or something, it's far more robust, and it then becomes a customer of what we used to just casually refer to as just marketing data. The same way they use that data to triangulate locations and then say that that is inaccurate data when it doesn't suit them. Um, basically, you know, cell phone triangulation, et cetera. The only positive, uh, George, is that if we know where to look, that's not privileged information because it involves the government and a private business as long as that private business isn't a contractor. Um, and, and most times I don't believe they are considered contractors, correct? Correct. Um, I mean – 
I don't know if anybody, I never saw the GSA bid come out for Twitter to do the work for the FBI, but apparently someone did. But no, I mean, and, and that's why they're so nervous. That's why people wind up getting banned, um, you know, or, or dialed back uh, on, on their reach on these platforms um, because there aren't, they don't have a lot of protections, you know, and, and that would be a good indicator in the iterative process to look for uh, is are these companies looking for greater protection uh, from the rabble rousers that are, are seeking uh, that kind of information? Yeah. Awesome. Michael, go ahead. So um, I've done a lot of research on this, uh, like more than I care to admit. Um, but when you look back at the CISA 2015 act that was passed, uh, it, it was passed illicitly and illegally. Um, it was never passed through the Senate. The only way that that got put through and forced through really uh, conveniently right around the time of the Ukraine uh, entire power structure and, and uh, electricity going out uh, through hacking in 2015. This is the same time frame, uh, December 2015. And so the way Obama had that passed was by putting it through the Senate Intelligence Committee, which the only person who actually pushed back um, on that was Ron Wyden of, of Oregon. Uh, Ron Wyden actually put out a uh, put out a, a FTC request for investigation into Newstar, um, and again, that's the company that spied on the president. Uh, also, has been spying on the Oval Office since 2001. So, uh, it's it's pretty damning. But when you when you think of it from a CISA perspective, like they they allowed through that bill, CISA 2015 Act, uh, they allowed basically what are called hacks and then hackbacks. So it's offensive and then basically defensive cybersecurity. So if you just simply say that, yeah, Russia hacked the election, well, now all that hacked data through, for example, CrowdStrike would go into CrowdStrike's private server and they would have key access nodes to all all of the uh, intelligence agencies, same nodes as well, because what are they doing? Well, they're protecting their infrastructure. Um, and so when DHS, you know, Jay Johnson, the clown, uh, dubs, you know, uh, critical infrastructure and voting infrastructure, a matter of national security uh, on January 6th of 2017, the same day that Obama gives away oversight of the Internet. We have no way of proving uh, that's why you can't have any data entered into a court of record and have it be accepted, because all of that data can be uh, remanipulated or re uh, shifted or changed before it gets to be seen by the judge. So without oversight measures of the Internet, we're, we, we're never going to have a free or fair election. So we, we have to fix those things. Otherwise, um, you know, we won't have a voice. They'll start going into our bank accounts. Uh, I mean, it's, it's going to get pretty bad if we don't fix this problem. Hey, and for everybody here, um, I really highly suggest that you take 10 minutes out of your day and go read the Erickson report that Michael did. Um, Michael, we've spoken before. Um, I'm using another name, I think, on our other chat. But, um, you know, his, his dive into that is a, is a pretty good case study on something that's kind of tangentially related to this, but it's all in the same airspace. It's the technology aspect. Um, I'll stop there. Cool. All right. Good stuff on the space. We have about a half hour left or so. Um, I figured we would take some questions. Name is, is the, the best at doing this. Um, Mitt, you have your hand up if you want to ask a question. Uh, yeah, I'm going to just uh, check my understanding of the framework for all of this um, information that free flow, all this information that free flows out from our communications devices. Uh, if I understand it correctly, and 
and that's why I'm asking. Uh, there's a system called the, the backbone, which is basically the three telecoms control this backbone, which is the cellular or the fiber network, fiber optic network that broadcasts everything that we do, everything that we use, our emails, our texts, every communication device. But prior to that backbone, there's something called upstream, which is what NSA uses. And I think the NSA uses all the upstream data collection, you know, Facebook and everybody else has access to the backbone. You can look up things after it crosses onto the backbone. But before it gets there, the NSA, from my understanding, sweeps up everything. Metadata, everything, everything prior to the backbone, every bit of private information yep. about you. And I just want to uh, make sure that, that I understand that correctly. Yeah, so, so if you go through uh, my first thread on the Ericsson Report, actually what happens is the ISPs provide that data to the DNS, and the DNS resolution provider is Newstar, and that's run by the CIA and uh, MI6. So it actually gets circumvented before it even reaches the NSA, um, and that is Newstar. So uh, it is, it's, it's like super, super, super important. Um, it's very technical, but at the end of the day, if we don't fix it now, uh, these people will have carte blanche access to everything at all the at all times, which they probably already. And have. I have Michael. But, what's your background? I actually worked uh, lead portability for the mortgage industry for twelve years, um, <laughs> and so that that allowed me to kind of understand the back end of uh, how things move and flow. And then when I found out that whole industry was fraud, uh, they put a target on my back, and uh, I quickly left that industry and went into investigative reporting. And can I follow up a question with uh, with Kyle? I think he's spoken a little bit this on another space, and, and that was um, the complete change of the IC uh, around 2010 after Obama got into office. And it was almost a purge of everything that the FISC and the FISA system was used for, which was really based on radical Islam and terrorism and things. And it almost started turning towards the USPERS, U.S. Persons Investigation Unit. And if he sees that as being correct, that around 2010, it really went into hyperdrive. I think George is also a, a really good point, so I'm hoping he'll weigh in on this. But the stuff that I've seen I am. as far yeah, you want to go first, buddy? I'll, I'll, I'll tag team afterwards. It's up to you, Kyle. I mean, Kyle and I talked about this at length um, on his podcast a couple weeks ago. But, yes, you're absolutely right in your observation that that did radically change in 2010. Um, uh, when ISIS... ISIS was not a good narrative for the Obama administration, and they, they kept that under wraps for a while um, out in the uh, media sphere. And then when Trump came in, obviously ISIS was, you know, eviscerated. But the threat from international terrorists in this country dropped off precipitously, um, even during the height of ISIS. You know, we had a few um, radicalized Americans that that. that that were willing to pick up the banner of jihad and carry that forth here in the country. But in terms of a large-scale international terrorist attack, that pretty much ended with, and I know people are going to laugh at me about this, but it's just like a concrete barrier, but TSA, hardening of the cockpits, and a few other small changes uh, to our lives they pretty much stopped that. And then when KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, wound up that down at Gitmo, which, by the way, I highly recommend the book Mastermind, um, when, when he was locked up, that pretty much took the threat of international terrorism off the table. But in the meantime, you created this huge industry and infrastructure out there and, you know, a 100 more senior executives in the intelligence community 
and that needed a boogeyman. And so the focus shifted, and then it became people who vote and think the wrong way. And I know I just used some hyperbolic language, but essentially that's what it became um, because we we lost the the international threat, just like we lost the Soviet Union in 1992 as, a, as an existential threat. Um, we had to have a boogeyman. Um, you know, Michael Crichton, in his works of fiction, writes about this very well in State of Fear. Um, we have to have our country in a constant state of fear in order to keep things going and keep the money flowing. And I was in the field at the time, and the change was dramatic and, like, overnight. And I remember we used to sit and look at each other and talk, like, hey, what just happened? They literally went in and completely dumped everything previously. When I say they, I mean the IC community, the training divisions. They completely changed everything, and it happened quick and fast. Well, obviously, sure, George, George is, uh, is super authoritative about it. I want to also refer you to some people that maybe have a different look in the world, but the, the, the message ends up being the same. So if you want to uh, see something, Trevor Erickson, who writes for The Intercept now, but also wrote a book called The Terror Factory inside the FBI's manufacture. Uh, of manufactured war on terrorism, it, it actually speaks to the fact that they, they literally ran out of international terrorism, IT, uh, domestically. And so the, the only way that you could really supplement that was through these manufactured investigations, of which I have seen from the inside, and they are absolutely absurd. The, the number of like low IQ and low capability people that are getting arrested for terrorist activities, and these are like what I'm calling, you know, IT, this is, uh, you know, uh, homegrown domestic uh, or homegrown violent extremists, which is our sort of jihadi threat that, that are born here but identify over there kind of deal. Um, you know, he wrote it in 2013, and it was right as that transition was happening where the Bureau was basically drying up because our military did a great job. Uh, you know, like it or, or dislike it, I, I kind of dislike it, but I think George is probably correct about just the, the deterrent that TSA uh, provides. And then you end up with um, – you know, sort of manufactured terrorism. And then, and then once you're already looking domestically at these guys, and that's what they were doing, they were, they were really growing uh, terrorist cases sort of organically in this country through feeding them, uh, you know, with, with capabilities and undercover operations and, and CHS work. Then you ended up with this, uh, you know, the domestic violent extremism is the next logical step. And that's how you ended up with the radical violent, you know, the radical, um, what do they call them? Racially motivated violent extremists, which is our white supremacy things. You know, the, the threat of them, I'm not saying that they're not racist in this country, and I'm not saying that there's not white supremacists. I'm, that's not an argument I'm making. I'm saying that the, the demand for that sort of uh, danger to the public does not meet the supply that the Bureau has in order to keep their funding up. And that's a really important distinction. And when you look at those things, that's how you end up with where we're at now. And I keep saying it. I'm going to say it again. Look for this next year or the next two years to be the years of anti-government, anti-authority violent extremists. That's going to be the new buzzwords because that's what they're going to have to, to push for the January 6th narrative to be um, you know, coherent in a, in a budgeting standpoint. So if you're not aware of these kind of terms, you know, these are, this is intel speak for what's going on. And unfortunately, you know, George is 100% accurate that you have to keep people in fear in order to, to keep the budget. That's really where it comes down. It's how you do the mission creep to justify the budget. There's a huge terrorist apparatus now that's probably 50% of the FBI's budget. And if you don't feed it, what the hell are you going to do with those people? You know, they don't have a job or a function. So they're keeping them going. George, you have it's the same. It's the same thing, like not-for-profits that get grants from the government for construction will knock down and rebuild the same wall over and over and over again to maintain the construction budget, even though there's no construction necessary. And I know that because I, I worked with a very, very, very large 
not-for-profit that had government funding up the wazoo in New York City, which is now defunct because of fraud. Surprise, surprise. I was the IT for it. I didn't do anything with the um, actual, you know, not-for-profit. But they would literally rebuild the same office hundreds of times for no reason other than they needed the money. It's exactly the same thing. Any government um, agency that has a budget, if they don't spend that money, then they they're not going to get refunded the next time around. It's just the yep. way it is. Yep, 100%. Steve, you have your hand up. And then I think, thank you, Mitt. That was great, by the way. Um, well, that's not really Mitt. His handle is Mitt Romney as a hologram. I think his name is Glenn. <laughs> if we uh, added you as a speaker and you want to talk, put your hand up. And then when you're done, just drop out. So I added a few people. Yeah, I just want to add one thing about the, the budgeting feature of uh, having too much of this, uh, the, the, the demand for terrorism outstripping the supply. Uh, it also goes to the personal budgets of the, of the folks that are in charge of these field offices. And, and George talked about it with Kyle, you know, about this this McKinsey consulting gig that came came out. And as a result of that, well, we have this TRP and FOSS process where essentially these senior executive service members negotiate compensation for themselves. And they set these metrics that then are pushed down to the rank and file that we have to open up a certain number of, of domestic terrorism cases and international terrorism cases. And they have to be for, you know, a, a particular uh, ideology in order for the boss to get his or her bonus. So that's, that's a whole other thing. It's, you know, personal gain uh, on top of just the institution uh, being funded. Hey, when, when is the fiscal budget year start? Is it September? So they probably like go quiet for the first six months because they're not doing anything right, and then like October, figure... October one is when it when it uh, rolls over, and uh, that's when you'll see like in my experience at least a bunch of units that ha- uh, squads that have like a, a small threshold they'll hold arrests that they know are coming until like the first week of October, and then they'll go ahead and hit them all out, and then they're they're golden for the next twelve months, um, and then yeah, expanding the same thing. You know, September rolls around. You're getting uh, hit up for, hey, make sure you're not driving a lot because we're out of gasoline funds. But uh, I've got $50,000 sitting in this pool over here. You know, what do you need? And then that's when you get my office. I was in with three people. We got a four wheeler sent out to us. It was a $30,000 piece of machinery. Well, that sounds fun. Go ahead, George. Sorry you can about go, that. George. Um, yeah, I'm good. So briefly, I just wanted to talk about how this money machine works real brief. And I, I don't want to make anybody's head hurts, but there is a, a process that the, the Bureau uses. We talked about McKinsey um, called integrated program management, which began somewhere around 2012, 2013. And, and part of that is the very first step is called the threat review prioritization and headquarters does their first chop on it. Then it rolls out to the field offices and, and they rank those threats in committee, for lack of a better phrase. And then they come up with the what's called the FOSP, the FOSP, which is um, Field Office Strategic Plan. And they say, okay, these are the threats that we have, you know, terrorism, domestic terrorism, international terrorism, um, you know, white-collar crime, and, and they rack and stack them. And, and then they just, by rule of thumb, just heuristically say, okay, um, how many sources do we think we need for that? Knowing that, you know, you're going to get five or six and you say, well, I think we're going to get, we need four. So, so they, they low ball this whole entire process so that the end of the fiscal year, everybody's a superstar, everybody's a winner, everybody gets a trophy. 
but it is it is the framework that the bureau uses developed by McKinsey to lay out its plan for the year and they get to decide what a winning score is and then intentionally lowball it and at the end of the day awards promotions attaboys you know um, so I, I didn't want to get too far into the weeds because you know it, it is kind of weedy so it always boggles my mind that a lot of this is really just for money like it boggles my mind that they care so much about money and there's not some bigger nefarious purpose for it all. But it seems like, evil. yeah, I mean, it seems like at the end of the day, it, it does boil down to that a lot of the time. So um, thanks, George. Any other questions? I think we have unknown error and Christopher has been in here for a long time. Do you guys have questions? I got a question for you. I don't know, maybe you guys spoke on it earlier or something, but um, I got in kind of a little late. But all Chris, these layouts. Fix your uh, mic, we can't hear you. You guys hear me now? You sound like you're in a horrible aluminum can, but yes, we can. I thought he was well, in a Well, kind of. I'm in a tractor. Yeah, I'm in a tractor plowing snow right now in the Northeast, but I got a question about the big tech layoffs and stuff. Is that just a coincidence that everybody's. Uh, laying off thousands of people or, or whatnot. But I, I have noticed recently that I've been able to post a lot of stuff that before I was getting silenced for and, and getting booted off like Facebook and things like that. I didn't know if anybody could speak on that. If that is due to some of these layoffs, maybe they're being investigated or, or things like that. Um, I can answer that. This is just a typical business cycle. we We've pretty much been in a recession since April, May. It was sort of noticeable of last year. And, you know, I guess the whatever agency in the government that officially acknowledges we've been in a recession, they, they, they won't call it. We've had like, what, two quarters in a row of negative GDP growth. Um, the employment situation is sort of muddled because we have so many job vacancies there's like two, two to one sort of ratio of open job availabilities to, you know, basically since COVID and people working at home and, and getting put on stimulus checks, like people don't want to work now. Um, they want to take as much handouts as they can. But this is a typical cycle we're seeing that when the Federal Reserve sort of shifts their policy and now they're tightening policy and, you know, money's, you know, more expensive to borrow. Um, the first industry that always gets hit is the, you know, the housing industry. And then you see it sort of flow into Silicon Valley and tech. And this is just, it's just very normal in the cycle because they overhire and overspend in the boom times. And now we're not in the boom times. Ad revenue is going to get hit. So they're all now just doing layoffs. That's just normal. And there's going to be a lot. I'd like her. I'd like to add to that. So like it's a, it's definitely a super cycle and there's everything is downstream from housing. That's right. So all like consumer spending, nobody's renovating their house, right? Construction goes down. It's all kind of a lagging indicator. The shoe just hasn't dropped yet. And there's the potential for, you know, when you start seeing mainstream media putting up news about, you know, don't be fooled. There's a recession still coming. It's like, it's only a matter now of whether it's going to be a super prolonged mega depression or a standard, you know, 
decline in business cycle activity and then, you know, come ripping back higher. Things like the housing market now are going to be a little different because there's lots of institutional money that's waiting on the sidelines to buy up all of the houses that when they drop in price, um, you know, people, that's how you'll be um, owning nothing and renting your house forever, basically, because after this cycle comes to a close, right, and the housing prices fall out, there's going to be a new buyer, um, which is large multi-billion dollar institutions that didn't exist last time where it was dependent on the consumer. And by last time, I mean, 2008, um, there weren't, you know, companies that were out there scooping up thousands of homes a month. Um, this time you're going to see a lot of that and they're going to be all cash offers, um, very high quality. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, it, the competition is going to be stiff because you're going to be competing against companies that don't need to get a mortgage and don't need to go through that process. They're just sending checks out. Um, and further than that, um, these fo- first of all, the, the open jobs right now um, can evaporate extremely quickly. So all of these job opens that are there can just be wiped off the job boards, right? Those disappear. Um, these layoffs are forward-looking technology companies at first, like Google and Amazon, right? Um, they close all their new hires, all the fiefdom building stops. They start cutting heads. Um, and then they start cutting even more. And then you get like the General Motors and the other, you know, the slow companies to respond. Um, and then you get. Yeah, not the, not to get like too off topic, but as far as the economic cycle goes, um, unemployment is like the lagging indicator. It's sort of like the last one, you know, but. Isn't anyway. it isn't it also that those empty jobs can only stay on the books for two years before they disappear as though they didn't exist anymore? I'm not really sure about that, but I know the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the the non-farm payroll numbers that they put out is highly like manipulated because they put this like birth death rate model in there. So like when they say we added, you know, X amount of hundreds of thousands of jobs, it's just, it's totally unreliable. It's, it's cooked. It's, it's all yeah. cooked. There's yeah. Justin, you want to say something? Yeah. I mean, I keep thinking of great ideas for people who have more time than I do, but, um, the idea would be, look, there there are uh, thousands of these people being laid off. I'm certain some of them are coming from very interesting places within Facebook and within uh, these other tech companies. I'm certain many of them have very interesting stories to tell on background or off the record. Uh, if some enterprising inter- independent journalist wants to go scour LinkedIn and find the people or check Twitter for people who have been laid off at Facebook, find out, uh, you know, what 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 arenas they were in some promising things there. One more note on Facebook though. Look, uh, I, I think, um, you know, what, what name redacted brought up, uh, what some of the FOIAs from some lawsuits, including my lawsuit have, have brought up is that Facebook is so massive and Twitter is just the tip of the iceberg in many ways. I mean, look, the revenue is at Facebook and meta is 40 times that of, uh, of Twitter uh, so many more entities over there. Uh, and, and I think there's, there's so many stories to, to uncover. You mentioned uh, name redacted in your thread about the, the monthly or bi-week or, or bi-weekly meetings they had. Look, they had weekly meetings, uh, with the CDC and with the HHS on all of these suppression issues. Uh, and that was from, uh, 2020 on. And so there's lots of, of things to, to delve into, uh, and try to uncover here. So, if, if anyone has time and uh, fewer kids than I do uh, have had it. You know, everybody is giving a pass to the biggest elephant in the room, which is Google. 
which is YouTube. Yeah. They're taking huge right. pass on all this right now. They're not being talked about as much, but I have a feeling that that's going to change very soon. Wink and a nod. Um, it'll, it'll come out through. I think it's going to come out through these attorney general lawsuits, Tracy. We're getting there. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I want to take uh, Callie. Hey, thanks for hosting. This is a great space and, and it's definitely very informative. Um, you know, the other elephant in the room in terms of the job uh, issue is the great number of the working uh, corporate working world who were the first to be mandated for the shots and who are now injured and, and sick. If you've looked at, I put a post in there tagging Ed, Ed Dowd. If you check out his data, it's really shocking um, how hard that, that demographic has been hit. And then uh, John Bedoyne, who's another one, I'll put his name in there so you guys can have him too. He's got death certificates from Massachusetts that just show um, catastrophic uh, death data from the shots of what's really going on. I mean, everyone's making a big deal about the myocarditis and what his information is showing is that the myocarditis is less than 1% of the deaths that are occurring in people. A lot of it is, um, and he's got it broken out by ICD, ICD-10 codes. Um, a lot of it is uh, cardiovascular um, cancers, um, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's literally devastating. And when all is said and done, um, you know, I, I honestly, I've heard the comment made that there's absolutely no way that, that every there, everyone will be impacted by this in some way, shape or form in terms of, um, a personal relatable story. I, I think I see, I see that a lot right now. There's not one person really that you can talk to that doesn't have that going on. And, you know, talking about that with Dowd, it's not just death, it's disability. Yeah. And so the, 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 yeah, the pool of available workers is smaller mm -hmm. and the numbers don't lie. And I keep on saying there's going to be someone who has to come and pay the piper. And eventually these insurance companies are not going to be able to keep paying out benefits on healthy people, quote, that are supposed to fuel their industry for the elderly to take services. Um, it's, it's just going to all come to a crash and it's going to happen there. There's, it'll happen when it happens is anybody's guess. Yeah. Thanks Callie. We have 10, we have 10 minutes. So yeah, I, I want to say something, Justin, I know you, uh, thanks for the kind words about the thread I did. Uh, it does. And Tracy, you know, this, we've been doing this forever, but it takes so much time to put these things together. And most of the time, like for me, I know Tracy, you're running the um, website and the news thing you're doing, but like, I don't have anything I'm working on right now, I usually wait for something to drop. And then that kind of gives me an idea. And then I go from there. Um, but I think the Twitter files uh, coverage, I, it would be nice if Elon Musk opened that up to sort of more Twitter or sorry, uh, internet sleuths or, you know, people like Tracy, me and, you know, there's other people, Kanakoa. Um, Cause we dig for stuff. I think that is sort of outside the box. Um, I don't know, but I think these attorney general lawsuits uh, versus Biden, we're getting a ton, we're getting more important information. I think there that sort of is the behind the scenes working of why, of what was going on in the Twitter files releases. Like why were these uh, requests sent to Twitter and Facebook to censor? 
well, through Attorney General Landry, like this um, deposition of Brian Scully, well, we know why now, and we know that there was no pressure again, and they were they were all partners in this effort. So hopefully, we get more information from these yeah, depositions. Yeah, I, I think you're right. That de- look, um, they they've given me some depositions. My my lawsuit unfortunately started in San Diego. I think we were one of the first ones after the July fifteenth uh, presser, where you know Jen Psaki last year admitted that she and Vivek Murphy were uh, actively working with uh, Twitter and Facebook and other groups to uh, act as act as proxies and censor Americans. Uh, but unfortunately, mine got set up to the the Northern Court of California, where it got son, uh, assigned to a, a Justice Breyer who is not retired Scotus Breyer, but the brother of Justice Breyer. And he's, he's actually one of the better justices on the court, but he's not going to do me any favors. But with all this new FOIA information, we may have some stuff to open up. But the AGs, because they've been able to move so quickly, move to discovery. Uh, I've got the uh, uh, the deposition of Carol Crawford, who was uh, the, per, the you know one of the key uh, components there at the CDC. And, and I think just more and more, real detailed reading into all of these uh, depositions is going to be the answer. There's there's no shortcut to it. It's going to take a lot of grueling time, as you did, to sort of weave these things together. That's why I think an ultimate single-source repository for all these FOIAs and depositions and discoveries, and then also a, a timeline would be super helpful. Yeah, timelines are the probably the most one of the most time-consuming things to do, and then to make it graphical and pretty is really hard. I have a timeline from the Spygate era that is thousands of lines that I have never been able to make a graphic before. So Epoch Times has a whole department and I have, you know, a ragtag little group of like four or five investigative journalists that are not graphic designers. Um, you do <laughs> so, terrific work. Don't, was, don't short yourself, Tracy. You're awesome. You guys are, you yeah, guys are cranking out stuff. Tracy Thanks. and my background back then was we were pretty much the it was me, Tracy, several techno fog when he was brand or she was brand new. We were kind of doing the whole spy date stuff. That was uh, fun times. Yeah, we had we had quite the crew going on. Let's take um, one or two more questions. Um, I, Michael, I see your hand up. I'll come to you at the end if that's okay because I want to get a couple questions in here. Ellie, uh, can you come back to me in a second? Sure, we'll try. Um, you, I guess it's um, um, um. Okay. All right, and, Michael. I guess. Yeah, go ahead, Michael. He just popped up on my screen. Uh, um, leather. I don't. Did he? Didn't say anything. Didn't say anything. Okay. Um, so did, did you want me to have that whistleblower show come on Wednesday uh, with the AI? Did I will make... tell you, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to bring him up to the stage on Wednesday. Um, only because I have a whole presentation I'm doing with him that might take two hours. Okay. So I don't want to say yes, have him come and then not be able to bring him up to actually get into anything. But I would like to do a space on it separately. Yeah, of course. You know, I'd love to go over the information I have. Um, I could tell you that, like, there's really no other off-ramp than this Erickson New Star story, uh, because as soon as they moved past and when when Trump got into power, he had the FCC cycle back the Internet, basically, back to 2014. Uh, So for some odd reason, since Biden's been in office, they've not been able to get a fifth chair 
into that FCC uh, committee to yep. what they would do is roll forward that internet. If they do that, we won't have access to that data and it's gone forever. Aye, aye, aye. Well, I don't know. Is there anybody else who has a question? Before- Tracy, you cut out or is that on my end? No, that was me. It was my, my damn thumb and the mute button. Does anyone else have another question? Otherwise, we'll just end it. We'll just end it early. Stop laughing at me, Kyle. You don't, <laughs> you don't get to laugh at me. Anyone? Hands? No? I want to thank uh, Name here for doing incredible investigative work and throwing that thread together for everyone. And thank you to Kyle and George and Justin and Farm and Joe and Michael and Steve for being here today. Really great informative space, quick wham bam two hour space, which is unheard of in these this world. So God bless all you guys. We'll be back soon. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you. Go. Bye.